When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In Japan, there's a large and growing number of people who shut themselves in for years. Not working, not going out, sometimes not even speaking. It's a problem that was noticed a generation ago that has recently gained greater urgency. And California suffers a range of natural troubles, from droughts to wildfires. Add to that list a plague of rats. Even in the state's glitzy parts, the rodents run riot, and a push to limit the poisons available means the rat pack will only get bigger. But first... Britain is bracing itself for an election next week. Tonight, Prime Minister Boris Johnson will go head-to-head in a televised debate with opposition Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. The snap vote was called in an attempt to resolve an impasse over Brexit after more than three years of arguments in Westminster over how to leave the European Union. The debate in London and Brussels centres on Britain's relationship with Europe and the rest of the world. But how much does that concern most Brits? And after all that wrangling, what do they think of the options they'll have on the ballot paper next Thursday? To find out, our correspondent decided to go for a walk. I went up to Northumberland to walk the length of Hadrian's Wall, which is a 84-mile frontier built by the Romans to mark the far northern point of their empire. Tom Rowley is a Britain correspondent at The Economist and has written about his walk for 1843, our sister magazine. Not much of it remains anymore. There are a few stones here and there, but mainly it's just about trudging through lots of muddy fields, seeing this sort of rather bucolic countryside. A walk actually starts in Newcastle itself, in the east end of Newcastle, which is the kind of traditionally industrial heart of northeast England, where there used to be shipyards, and there's still sort of the remnants of heavy industry there today. So why did you want to go to this particular part of the country? Is it a key election battleground? Precisely because it's not, actually. Um, political pundits uh, in elections, for obvious reasons, tend to focus on marginal constituencies that might change hands next week. Actually, I wanted to go um, back to Northumberland, where I grew up, because it has eight seats, almost all of which are pretty certain not to change hands next week. Most Britons live in pretty safe seats, which doesn't mean they don't have interesting things to say about politics, but they tend to get ignored at election times for obvious reasons. So I thought it would be interesting to escape the Westminster bubble a little bit, go on a sort of jolly nice walk, and try to find out what they were thinking about Brexit and about the election. 
So, so where did you, you start your perambulation? Ironically enough, I started in Wall's End, um, the former site of what was once the biggest shipyard on the River Tyne. I started at the Wall's End Memorial Hall, where I had a chat with a chap called Keith Palmer. Well, North Shields used to be a really good town. Mm-hmm. He's an ex-welder who used to work in the shipyards, and he was able to sort of conjure up this, this wonderful picture for me of this tying, heaving with massive ships. At the time, the river was thriving. Putting the, the workers' terraced houses into shadow. From Lake Shields, you had Smith's Docks, and then you had Clellan's in Milton Key, you had Wall's End Slip. All along both banks of the Tyne, as these great fortresses would be manoeuvred out to sea over the last sort of century or two. There was loads of work. Or we would come up here, or you'd bump into somebody, and you'd say, oh, so-and-so's starting, well, let's give them a call. The great product of Newcastle and um, the wider region were ships and coal, and the North made both of those things, and, and the South sold them. And so what did he say when you spoke to him about, about his politics? Oh, I used to vote Labour, but... Like most Georges of his generation... He spent most of his life voting Labour. He blames the Tories for their demise of industry in this part of the world. And, I mean, Margaret Thatcher, she killed this river. She killed most of Britain, Thatcher. Most of the shipyards and coal mines closed, and that cemented the traditional link between Northern England and the Labour Party. There's nobody there like, to help. I'm born and bred in this country, and... You go to the job centre and ask for something. No, no, no. Yet, in recent years, he also has felt rather disillusioned with Labour. All my life, it's either been a Labour or a Conservative government, and they've done nought for me. So I just try and vote for the UKIP or someone like that. (laughs) Just to keep them out. Because they're all promises until they get in, and then pie in the sky, innit? So who else did you meet as you as you walked along the wall? A few days into it, my feet were aching. I was sort of starting to wonder why on earth I thought this had been such a good idea. And so I decided it was time for an evening in the pub. I invited some people who lived nearby, farmers and landowners, to join me in a pub halfway along the wall. And it got fairly lively, actually. Um, As things sometimes do in a pub. As things are known to do, yes. Uh, They had interesting political views. I mean, yes, it's an important day in December, but, you know, the Senate can't seem to agree or disagree in anything. They were all going to vote Tory this time round, but not many with enthusiasm. I'm rather fed up with all the politicians who have behaved appallingly, in my view. Um, And um, they should have all towed the party line and we should um, have left a long time ago. But actually, the thing I found more interesting was that although some of them had voted to remain in the referendum in 2016 and most of them had voted to leave, now all of them agreed that we should leave the European Union as quickly as possible. But for me, I wasn't a passionate leave or anything, but I... I think it's now come down to a matter of democracy. They had no truck whatsoever with the idea of a second referendum. 
and in part because of that, their politics, just like the mood in the pub, was united and convivial. In fact, someone even sang me a, a folk ballad. He was born and bred in Ireland at a place called Castle And it made me think, really, reflecting on that evening, that the the Tories have a much easier job of it now than Labour. Labour supporters tend to be Remainers, but they have a fair number of Leavers, and there they both are unreconciled, whereas Tory Leavers and Tory Remainers are now essentially all Tory Leavers. What do you think? what your walk showed you says about what's going to happen in the election. I think the Tories are pretty safe, both in their traditional heartland, but I think they're also likely to wing over some traditionally Labour voters up north as well. Even so, though, I don't think that the Tories doing well should be interpreted as widespread support for Parliament or a kind of pat on the back for the current government. Actually, what I discovered among almost everyone I talked to, was a deep sense of dissatisfaction about Parliament, about MPs, more broadly about the understanding of rural parts of the country in urban ones. And I think that is going to take quite some time to heal, and uh, we're not going to start on that after next week's result. It sounds as if perhaps some uh, parliamentarians in Westminster should make the walk that you did. Yes, if they want to, but I think I'd recommend they invest in some thick gloves and woolly socks. Tom, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Throughout Japan, there are over a million people who have turned their backs on society. They don't go out to dinner or to the movies. They don't hold down jobs. They might not even speak. They're known as the hikikomori. They shut themselves in their bedrooms alone for years on end. The issue first came to light in the 1980s, but it's returned to public view following a handful of violent incidents. In May, a middle-aged hikigomori went on a stabbing spree in the city of Kawasaki. The following month, a retired government bureaucrat murdered his reclusive son, apparently out of fear he might hurt someone. Hikigomori are not normally violent, but they're aging and growing in number, and Japan is grappling with what to do about them. 
つの仕事してたんですか。えっと、私が。I recently interviewed a woman called Mika Shibata. David McNeil reports for the Economist from Tokyo. She's a single mother in her 50s, and she lives in Western Tokyo. And I had to meet her in a noisy restaurant because she insisted that we not meet at her home in case we disturbed or angered her son. What she explained was that one day, about a year ago, her youngest son, age 26, returned to the family home and, without saying a word, went upstairs to his bedroom. And a year later, when we were talking, he has not only yet to reemerge from his bedroom. He doesn't talk. He hasn't said a single word since he came home. Like many hikikomori, he lives basically during the night time. He sleeps during the day. His mother feeds and shelters him. What she said was, the longer the situation goes on, the harder it is for him to step back into society. So you mentioned he doesn't speak. Does does she interact with him at all? Has she tried to get him to open up? The sense I get is that he is in a state of what we might call deep depression, to the point where he won't make eye contact and sort of wordlessly lives his life. And what his mother does is brings him his food and very rarely pushes him. She will greet him. She will say, "How are you?" But when I asked her why she doesn't kind of push him harder to open up, she said because she thinks it would be counterproductive. And in fact, some parents have been advised by counselors that it is counterproductive to sort of push hikikomori too hard because they will withdraw deeper into their shell. That it's better to just nurture them and create the environment where, at some point, they begin to reemerge into society. And this is a common problem in Japan. It is common. The government did a survey, and they say there are over a million hikikomori across the nation, and they define that as people who have not participated in society for at least six months. But in the worst cases, some of these people have barely stepped outside their homes for decades. I interviewed a psychiatrist called Tamaki Saito, and he is the person who popularized the term hikikomori. And he says, unless this problem is tackled, there could be many millions more. I mean, it seems in- incredible. All of these cases—is—is is there anything like this anywhere else in the world, or is this a, a uniquely Japanese problem? It's not uniquely Japanese. No. In fact, the BBC did a story a couple of years back on hikikomori, and there were a lot of messages posted to the website from people in England and America and in Asia, indeed, saying that, "Well, I have a child at home who is a hikikomori, and he's not Japanese." So I don't think it is, but there are probably several factors in Japan which may make it particularly prevalent here. One, I think, is just the hierarchical nature of school and work here. The pressure to succeed and a relative lack of outlets for emotional expression; those are the things that people say are pushing people into this disorder. And what happens? A typical case is it seems to often kick in on the borderline between being an adolescent and joining society. So, what do Japanese people think about this? Do, do they see this as a big problem? How, how are they attempting to deal with it? When I came here in 2000, and already hikikomori was a recognized term, there were lots of stories in the newspapers about it. The problem emerged over a generation ago in the 1980s, but really few people understood it. The sort of common perception, if you like, is that these recluses were just lazy. If they were teenagers, they just needed a good, you know, kick in the bum, or they were odd. And there was very little mental health care to fix the problem, and almost no official support. And many parents felt responsible, and they were too embarrassed 
to talk to other people for help. And are there any cases of successful reintegration? Is there some way they can recover? So I have talked to one person. He was called Morito Ishizaki, and he's a recovered hikikomori, and he runs a magazine for sufferers. And he was always a shy person, and he didn't like school. And the more his parents nagged him, the further he retreated into his shell. And the reason why he snapped out of it, he really wasn't very clear, but he said that one thing that helped him was keeping a lifeline with the outside world, talking to people on the internet and so on. And I think that the only thing that everybody agrees on is that the longer these cases go on, the harder it is to treat and to reach hikikomori because they get into a state where they are so isolated and also so incapable of joining society with the skills needed. If you think somebody's been a recluse for 10, 15, 20 years, they've just forgotten how to live. So there's a lot of emphasis now on the support groups that are proliferating around the country. There's a nationwide network which was set up last year. Tokyo is among several big cities that operate helplines and websites. There's a lot of emphasis now on catching this problem early. But if the longer it goes on, the harder it gets to stop being a hikigomori, there must be a whole generation of people who have been for a long time. How much of a problem is is being stored up here? The Cabinet's office survey was released earlier this year, and it said that more than half of the hikikomori in Japan are now aged over 40. And that was a shocking figure to some because, you know, a generation ago, it was assumed that this was a problem that afflicted mainly teenagers or the young and that they would bounce back. So now you have isolated people in their 40s and even in their 50s, and luring people like that back into society is not easy. The local authorities can only send counsellors out to families if they're asked. So this is a real dilemma for the parents of these people because they are getting old. If you think about middle-aged hikikomori, their parents are now in their 70s and 80s. When they pass on, what will happen to these children who are living essentially on the good graces of their parents? It's a real issue for Japanese society. So the woman you spoke to, Mrs. Shibata, what does she think her son's future will be like? Well, you know, you really feel for her. She sort of lives in hope that the youngest son will snap out of it. She doesn't even know why exactly he became a recluse. She speculates that he was bullied at work. And what she lives in hope for, I guess, is that the sort of kindness, the love that she extends to him will pay off and that one day he will emerge from his room and say, look, I'm ready to rejoin society. But that's something that others, people who are older, may never have. They may never recover. David, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. California is known for its warm weather, its beaches, and its movie stars. And now also, rats. In Los Angeles, rat numbers are up by half in the past five years. And while the furry beasts pose their own problems, their growing populations reflect other issues that the state has yet to deal with. I was in Santa Barbara walking down uh, the main fancy shopping street, and you see uh, rats even during the daytime, plump specimens scurrying around even though they're nocturnal animals. Benjamin Sutherland writes for The Economist, frequently from rat-infested California. It's not quite at the point where there are so many, they're stepping on them, but something does seem to be amiss. So what's caused this proliferation of rats? 
Well, one of the things is that California's drought has ended. There's a lot more fruit, a lot more fruit falling from the trees, a lot more food being tossed into compost piles. Rats love that. And also with what appears to be climate change, we've got longer, warmer breeding seasons. Rats don't like cold. And so the rats are able to have more litters per year. And uh, part of the problem is there's an acute housing shortage in California. Wait, what's the connection there? Why does the lack of housing mean more rats? Well, you have a very high homeless population. In fact, according to federal statistics, about half of all unsheltered people in the United States are in California, even though the state only has about 12% of America's population. So because of that, you've got outdoor defecation. Cockroaches eat the human waste. Rats eat the cockroaches. You've got homeless encampments that provide shelter for rats. And of course, rats can get access to food in homeless encampments easier than they can in someone's home. Okay, so having rodents all over the place is clearly unpleasant for lots of people, but is that all there is to it? Well, no, there are problems. In fact, rodents are vectors for about three dozen human diseases, including plague and hantavirus. Hantavirus has killed about 15 of the roughly 54 people in California who've contracted the disease in the last 20 years. That's a statistic from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Typhus is another problem. We've got city employees in Los Angeles, among other places, catching typhus in city hall, police stations, and other buildings where you wouldn't expect there to be a rat problem. Well, why is this so hard to deal with? Why can't authorities just wipe them out with poison or something? Okay, so you have two different broad types of rat poison. Single-use or single-meal rat poison, which kills a rat pretty soon after they eat a single meal. The problem with that is that that type of poison remains in the system, and if a predator, like a bird of prey or a fox, eats the rat uh, before they die, that predator can ingest that poison. And if the predator happens to be unlucky enough to eat a number of doomed rats uh, before they die, it can even kill that predator in some cases. So there's resistance among a number of vocal groups to ban that type of rat poison and uh, require pest control companies to rely on uh, multi-meal or multi-dose rat poisons, which a rat has to eat for four, five, six, seven, eight days in a row in order to die. And so those groups want the more potent poisons to be banned then? Well, actually, what's happening is that liberal lawmakers are about to pass a law called AB 1788, which would dramatically restrict access to a certain type of rat poison. AB 1788 has passed the Assembly. It still needs to be voted in the Senate, but all signs are that the bill will pass probably sometime early next year, probably in January. So if the bill becomes law as you expect, surely that means the rat population will continue to increase. Uh, The rat population will continue to increase. Yeah, it's pretty clear that if you take that tool out of the toolbox, you're going to have more rats. Right. So in the endless war between rats and humans, it seems like the rats are winning, in California at least. Benjamin, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I've enjoyed being here. That's all from us on The Intelligence, but we'd like to know more about you and what you think of the show. Do us a favor and head over to economist.com slash podsurvey. 
and see you back here on Monday. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.